0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Tim Miller, political activist, consultant, and author of a new book, Why We Did It, a travel log from the Republican road to hell. As you know, I generally talk with people who have been staffers at very high levels and loved it. They reflect on their careers with pride and joy and nostalgia. Tim Miller also performed at the highest levels of politics, and today he's well known to people who follow politics closely. But his experience with the Republican Party's transition since the nomination and presidency of Donald Trump is very different, and it has led to a book that I highly recommend. Why We Did It is a book for and about political staffers. It's about ethical choices and perils that we all face. If you haven't yet, then you haven't been in politics for very long. It is not a book about someone who holds himself above everyone else. In fact, the whole first half of the book is Tim grappling with his career, the choices he made, and the decisions he regrets. The book is thoughtful. It is honest, candid to the point of brutally honest. And it is funny. It is worth your time. If you work in politics or if you want to. For those who aren't familiar with Tim's career, in shorthand, he worked on John McCain's presidential campaign in Iowa in 2008. He was spokesman for the Republican National Committee during Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential uh, campaign. And afterward, he helped author the very famous Autopsy Report, which followed that campaign. And it recommended that the GOP become more inclusive and reach out to women, to black Americans, the Latino community, etc. In 2016, he was spokesman for Jeb Bush's presidential campaign. Following the election of Donald Trump to the White House, Tim left the Republican Party and became one of the leaders of the Never Trump movement. You can see his analytical commentary on MSNBC and read his work at The Bulwark, where he is writer-at-large. Tim and I recorded this episode on Wednesday, September 21st. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Tim Miller, welcome to Staffer. So good to be with you, former staffer,
1: not a staffer anymore, actually, Uh, but uh, I'm glad I still qualified for
0: the podcast. You you absolutely still qualify. Um, And in fact, it is your role as a former staffer that we're going to dig into today, uh, because you've written a book about your experience. And to be honest, your book covers an aspect of being a staffer that we don't normally cover on this show. Like the animating notion behind this show... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and the and the ethical quandaries that, to be honest, really are a part of being of working in politics or government, um, and I'm I'm excited to dive into it with you because look, if you are a, a young person who wants to be in politics or or is in politics, like this is just a reality that you're going to have to you know experience and and grapple with, and. You know, it can, you know, as you described in your book, it can lead to some dark places and some disappointments, but it can also serve, you know, as guardrails if you go in with eyes wide open. So um, For sure. I read every every page of your book, Tim, why we did it. Thank you. Um, and in your words, the book aims to, quote, dig through the wreckage of the party I once loved and come to understand how so many of my friends allowed something that was so central to our identity to become so unambiguously monstrous and why they had continued to do so once the monster became uncontrollable. And that phrase identity really jumped out to me because it is true. Like if you work in politics and government, very often like that, that it's more than just a political affiliation. It can feel like our identity. So my question is, how did how did politics become part of your identity? Where did you meet politics? How did you get into it? And how did that sort of evolve at the beginning?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I Jim, thanks again for having me. This is fun. I'm good, happy to see you again. Uh, the identity element is an important part of this, and, and we can get into it more, but I I felt like I'm glad you, you picked that out because it is really true, right, for people in, in Washington. Like that, especially, I think, we should just say, I think particularly for white staffers, right, because, um, you know, I, I think that in a lot of ways, right, if you're in a minority group, like, which I kind of am, I guess, as a gay, I see myself as gay, as, you know, you know, as that is an identity that I really hold on to. But, you know, when, you know, you don't a lot of times white people we don't think about our skin color like in as like oh I'm part of a white identity group that's a good thing actually <laughs> but yeah, so you right. glam onto other things right so your identity be- can become your religion uh, and in DC for a lot of people it's their party and 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 it becomes your friend group and your job and and how you see yourself and how other people see you and your LinkedIn profile name in my case which is something I've never scrubbed um probably something I should look back on uh <laughs> and 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 it and that I think makes it you know identities are hard to change right and 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 the way that you treat it becomes different than the way you treat a normal job so um anyway with that kind of intro we could get into that more my i to me i i got into it as a very young person i was i just i loved politics um my my parents weren't particularly into politics my grandmother was a very Deep, long held Republican. She was one of the nine people that voted against FDR. Um, and so <laughs> she was just a loyal Republican. She even still liked Nixon after the 70s. That should have been a red flag in retrospect. <laughs> I love you, Mimi. Um, but uh, the, um, and so we had a, a bet actually on the 1992 presidential race. She said George H.W. Bush precocious fifth grade me said bill clinton um uh, that was the same year i moved uh, to colorado and so after bill clinton won she had to pay off the bet and send me a single one dollar um which i was very excited to receive and run around the house and show off and uh it was the last time i rooted for a democrat until hillary clinton in 2016 <laughs> so it was 25 years i guess between my clinton uh, uh dalliances so uh, after that i just i followed politics i i was a dorky kid that read about it um Um, you know, to the extent you could back in the 90s, right? It's a lot harder than it is now. But um, I watched Judy Woodruff. And, uh, you know, I was just that kid. And um, I I volunteered on campaigns. uh, And in 98, The first campaign I interned on was this guy who's running for Governor Bill Owens of Colorado. He's a challenger. He wins the primary. Um, That was my summer job that summer. I was privileged enough to not have to have a real summer job. And and so everybody in the campaign knew me, right, because I'm the 16-year-old that's everywhere all the time. I have nothing else to do all summer. Um, And then uh, in the fall, you know, you're dipping out of school sometimes a little early. And then on on election night, he wins in a big comeback, was not supposed to win. It was kind of a coin flip going into election night, and he wins you know, late at night, they call it three in the morning. Like, you know, it's a school night for me. I'm up like the older, you know, the older interns, the college guys and stuff that I was hanging out with, they're all drinking. I'm sneaking drinks. And you know, it's fun. It was exhilarating. And from there, I really I think, went down this path of of being a partisan, right, of, kind of getting into Republican politics and loving the politics of politics. Um, not that there, there weren't some earnest elements of getting into it, but th- that part overtook kind of the policy element or like the ideological element. And it was really more I got addicted to the politics of it kind of from that first experience in 98.
0: Well, I want to return to that. But the, you know, that is something that You know, anyone in politics really does come to love. There is a, you know, a a thrill of victory, a pain of defeat. You know, it's exciting uh, and it's competitive. And it's no wonder to me that, you know, I know I myself have been attracted to it, that lots of people get into this that can discover a love for it. Um, And also it has it does have meaning and impact on the country, et cetera. Um, You uh, you are a proud LSU Tiger. Uh, and afterwards you become a, you know, you enter the field of politics as a professional. Um, and once you did, I mean, your career really took off like a rocket. I mean, in a short period of time, you went from field director on a gubernatorial campaign in Virginia for Jerry Kilgore in 05. You then had, oh, we're going to start
1: listing off my losses here. Yep. Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. I'll go easy on these. Okay, uh, you did a couple of house races, um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> and then, and then you were a communications director for McCain in Iowa uh, during his 08 campaign. Now, your book is filled with a lot of brutal self-assessment. Um, but before I, you know, I get into like the heart of the book, you were, ve- you know, and are a very skilled communicator, and you were. And you also came up uh, utilizing research, you know, to push a a communications narrative. What, you know, to give yourself a compliment, what made you good at that? Like, why, you know, why did other people look at you and say, we need them, we need Tim on our campaign?
1: I think part of the reason was because I did love politics and like followed it closely. I had to be, this is a necessary but not sufficient skill for being a good communicator, right? But like, you need to know what do the, what are the reporters going to care about? Right. What are and I just I can I know as somebody that had to be a boss of communicators later on and and was competing for jobs early, that like a competitive advantage for me was I was obsessed with this stuff. I read what these journalists wanted to blogged about, right, at the time blogging. And then eventually their social media feeds, right? I I tried to hang out with them when possible and and socialize with them. And and you would see a lot of people who'd want to go into comms. And like the stuff that they would produce would maybe be well written in like a technical sense, right? But it wasn't in touch with what reporters would care about, right. And so yeah. then that's pointless. Like that's kind of masturbatory after <laughs> that point, right. Like you wrote a cool press release, but no, but if no press covered it, like, did it really happen, right? Yeah, And so I think that was one thing that really worked in my favor that was not. That anybody could do, right? I mean, at some level, I was like a speech nerd and a speech kid, and I was good at the performative side of this. And I, you know, that might just be predator net. I just because I'm, I have an overbearing mother, uh, you know, I don't know <laughs> that that is like teachable, really, right? Um, but that part, the other part is right. The like really learning about it and caring about it, understanding what what um, you know gets into the news, um, you know, what matters, um, and and honing you Know your message for that. Um, so and that was one thing. And the other thing that was also just related to this was I really wanted to be in comms, right? You can get stuck in on a track, and inertia is my big advice for 20 something staffers. So like, totally. you can get stuck on a track very, very quickly. And you know, I you went through my resume there briefly, but I think it was like my third job and on the political side. Like my first job I got was just on the political side just because that intern boss from the Owens campaign was the political director, and right? So he helped me get jobs. And so my first three jobs were all on political side. and And after the third one, I finally was like, no, I, I want to do comms. Like I think that's what I'd be good at. I'm a little bored by this. and and I just I, I went and made that happen. Like I went to campaign managers that I knew from lower campaigns and asked bosses and stuff, like find me a person that would hire me for a low level comms job. Um, and, and, you know, I do think that that is something that for whatever reason people are like scared to do in politics is this culture of like, oh, you should be loyal to your last boss and they're going to want to place you in the next position and all this stupid stuff. And like, um, that was, you know, something that obviously worked out for me, uh, just, just finally like ripping off the bandaid and saying, no, I want to do this other thing and like trying yeah. to be aggressive about making it happen.
0: Yeah. Well, so, um, that 2008 campaign was a sort of a, a threshold, a new plateau in your career. I mean, it got you noticed um, yeah. by people at a, at a higher level of Republican politics. Yeah. In you know, I expected your book, I'll tell you, to be a, sort of an outward-looking book about people who worked for Trump after they had already criticized him. And I did not, and for anyone who hasn't read it yet, it is very inward-looking. The first half of the book is all about your journey before you, right, look outward to others. And you describe a moment in the 2008 campaign in Iowa with John McCain where you say, you know what, that was an early indicator that, you know, the party and my experience with the party was headed down the wrong track, and I I could have and maybe should have recognized it then. Could you just talk about that story? Yeah. Did
1: recognize it. I think is the real truth, right? Mm. And it's just about parkmentalizing it. Like I did recognize it. Um, I, I talked about it was an event in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and um, uh, you know McCain uh, did the town halls, right? Uh, the Q and A, uh, as and which you know sometimes were really inspiring. I don't, I don't. Sometimes I worried a little bit about the book. I tried to balance. Like there were some things I look back at myself and feel like, oh, you should have seen that coming, and I feel bad about. It. But there were you know some genuine elements about this, and I think with McCain and that job in particular. He would have some really uplifting kind of moments in these town halls. The Council boss Fund was not one of them. Um, he just gets it – it's in the middle of the McCain-Kennedy immigration reform bill, and he's just getting raked over the coals, questioner after questioner um, about uh, the illegals. And, you know, the, the rhetoric they were using on the questions was very, uh, you know, kind of bigoted or at least, you know, Dark, had hints of it. Um, amnesty, 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 some conspiracies, the NAFTA superhighway. Aren't you worried about this? I don't know if you remember the NAFTA superhighway. Oh, I and do. That was a big I do. I'm surprised Trump yeah. never reanimated that one. That felt very, it right. felt like a very Trumpy conspiracy. Well, um, if somebody mentions it to him. <laughs> people were worried about that in Council <laughs> Bluffs. And it's like, this isn't El Paso. Okay. And I think there's some legitimate concerns about immigration and what's, you know, safety in the border and all that. But like, we're in Iowa. If anything, immigration. From the southern border is a net plus to Iowa, right? They need worker, farm workers, et cetera. And it's been a boon to some of these communities. So, like, this notion that this was some big threat that every single person had to ask about, I think was obviously just a, a, a very clear sign that, like, what was Happening, The conservative media was contaminating the whole base or maybe the other way around, like the bases prejudices were, you know, the, you know, it's maybe a chicken and egg thing right? the conservative media was feeding them, you know, what they wanted to hear. Uh, and, and, you know, so I write about asking some of the field people I'd moved to comms at that point, like who were dealing with folks um, at, you know, more directly. What their experience was, and it was the same—just horrible, you know, kind of uh, uh, abuse they were taking over this bill. I, one woman I remember, she was telling me about how she was crying about another, about how some woman told her that we just got to put all the illegals back on a bus back to Mexico. And John McKay, like, whatever. Anyway, so I just—I looked back on that and think, obviously. You know, me, if, if you just separate me out from the, the politics of this and just, just I'm just a person that lives in Iowa, I don't have a lot of ideologically in common with the, these people, right? Like I might have a lot in common with John McCain, right? But I don't have a lot in common with the people that we're trying to and, – and eventually over time, we get into that in the book, that tension like, is not sustainable, Right. Um, and then obviously Palin happens and, and, you know, you go on from there and you see the types of people Or at that event, at these Palin events, which were kind of these proto-Trump events really with the um, quote-unquote deplorables, et cetera, um, and were a very different kind of monster truck uh, rally vibe than you had at the McCain events. Uh, and 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 the reality is that I just I did see it at the time that I that that what they wanted, what these voters wanted, was different from what I did, and that that we were kind of going a dark place with it. Um, I didn't know how dark. I mean, I didn't think that Donald Trump was going to be the president, but um, that I, I saw it and and just sort of kind of put it in a little box in my brain. I was like, well, you know, I don't know. Yeah. There's there there are bad liberals too, and John McCain's right. a nice guy, right? There's a lot of ways to uh, to rationalize it.
0: Yeah so that that dynamic that you described this like chicken and egg contamination like is it you know right is the is the party reaching out to an element within its voters that is just dangerous and ugly, but they want to animate that in order to like goose turnout, you know fundraising et cetera, and or is it you know the 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 now media environment allows for some of the darkest elements of the population to like insert themselves, and whether it's probably a little bit of both, right? Both right. of those things are true, they're happening simultaneously. Um, you know, that there was a dynamic that you described in your book called Centering the Commenters. I'd never heard that phrase before, and it was something that I think you described as like an innovation of Steve Bannon, or at least once he saw the opportunity in it, he like, you know, doubled and tripled down on it. So can you describe for our listeners who aren't familiar with it what centering the commenters is?
1: Yeah, so that is related to this in like how the media, conservative media side of this was was. Um, exacerbating what I identified in Council Bluffs, basically, and like, why was that happening? Right? I mean, there was always rush, you know. There was always some level of conservative yep. media, but there was just still this different, like the DC, the big, the DC media, conservative media was was mostly an ideological media, right? Like where they had these beliefs, you know, that came down from Milton Friedman or whatever, or if it was a social conservative site, religious yep. beliefs, and and they would you know, put their thumb on the scale for Republican candidates and, you know, shade the news and stuff towards those beliefs. But they had these underlying kind of beliefs, right? That was and and so the periodicals were mostly kind of stayed, (laughs) you know, like they weren't, they weren't at the front of the grocery store line, right? (laughs) Okay, so that is what was happening then. Bianna comes along and and, and I don't you know, want to give him complete credit for this. Andrew Breitbart, um, I, I think, saw this. I never talked to Andrew Breitbart, so it's it's possible Bannon stole this. You know, he's a good he's a good stealer of concepts and taking them on his own, right? Um, uh, so there were other people at the time that were drudge. I know there were other people at the time that were seeing this coming, but it was this notion of, okay, well, instead of this stuffy elite kind of type of conservative media where we are telling the people what they should think – um, and, and, and actively ignoring the, the, what the people want. And this is a little joke. I say in the thing like literally in campaigns, the idea is like, don't read the comments. You know, you tell your candidate not to read the comments. It's like, yeah. these are the craziest people. Right. Don't worry <laughs> right. about the comments, right? Don't worry about that. Like we're, we're talking to the mainstream audience. It's too busy to comment on the article. Um, that's not right, actually. What it turns out is that the Bannon view was right, which is like those people, the people that are commenting on the articles are the most engaged. Those people that you should be nurturing and feeding. And so what ends up happening is, okay, they still get some conservative ideological stuff where, where they align. But then there are other things that come up. They have wacky conspiracies about things. They have racist, you know, kind of uh, uh, innuendo about Obama, obviously. Um, There is, you know, whatever stuff that's not particularly conservative, really. But they're just mad at, like, liberal elites and they want to see them punished. We're seeing this now. Um, uh, DeSantis doing this kind of stuff. So, like, that... you know, so so two things were happening simultaneously: the proliferation of conservative media, thanks to the internet and like the access to it, people were able to get more of it than they had been. They'd used to just have their three hours of rush, and then that was it. Right now, they're able to get more, and the actual media itself appealing to that broader audience with more, you know, kind of racy red meat, whatever. You want to call it, um, and and so I, I, again, I think that these like kind of factors then play on each other, right? And so it, it increases the radicalization, right? Because so now people are more and more in this bubble um, where they're not getting news outside the conservative media bubble, and the kind of news that they're getting is really more untethered from you know any sort of broader principle and more just fan service. Um, and and I, and I think that Breitbart used that basically to to take control of the policy debate on a lot of key issues not on everything right like on a lot of things you know still Mitch McConnell and John Boehner or whatever were in charge but on the hot button issues they pulled the party to the right on immigration and criminal justice and a whole spate of issues because the politicians could no longer just kind of do their oh you know we're the elites we'll handle the policy thing and we'll deal with you all later like the it became a they were too powerful, you know, and started to take control yeah. over, over the party. And so in a lot of ways, I, went, I talked to Matt Boyle about this after he was a Breitbart reporter after the book came out. And and despite the fact that I was pretty mean to him in the book, he agreed with this notion that, like, really the Breitbart comment section kind of took control of the party between this period, between 08 and 2016. So it's like if we're, if we're letting these people's, you know, um, uh, passions guide us and you need those people to vote for you in a primary. Like then, eventually, it's not surprising that, that that slowly but surely it'll be like this magnet for the candidates, like more towards that that worldview.
0: Yeah. Well, and and if people surrender their adherence to any sort of principle or policy goal, then where we find ourselves, as they have in so many cases, we now find ourselves in this world where like there is no bottom floor of the elevator, right. because right. It, you know, whatever, whatever the most extreme position is on immigration today, as soon as, you know, there's a little bit of political consensus around, uh, consensus around that within Republican leaders, there'll be some crazy group on the Internet, right, that says it's not strong enough and it needs to go further. And so the elevator just keeps going down and their willingness to say or do anything at an elected leader level just keeps like setting, you know, new boundaries.
1: Yeah. Well, look at the election denial. This is the be- most yes. the most stark example of that, right? Breitbart and even, F- even whoever you hate the most on Fox, even Tucker, like they didn't really go into the, like Hugo Chavez and the Chinese actually changed the votes, right? Like they did the whole, oh, the drop boxes, there were too many drop boxes. And, you know, Zuckerberg put money into some of the elections. And, I, you know, they did a lot of, like, they're old school kind of just asking questions, conspiracies, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then Sidney Powell comes around and is like, no, literally they changed the numbers in the voting machines. Like, they changed. And and so what happens? Well, Newsmax is like, well, our viewership will skyrocket if we just parrot this. You know, right. Gateway Pundit, um, all these other we- um, the podcasts we've been talking about, Bannon's new podcast, War Room. And, and so his old site, Breitbart, like, gets outflanked. Right. By now, these even and that 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 is a real thing that happened like between 20 and 21. And, and yeah, so that and to your point on the elevator, like we tested that, right? Like what we thought was the most extreme edge. Um, you know, they very easily got outflanked by stuff that like would have seemed insane. Like the notion is, oh, there will be really be a conservative media outlet that's like our voting machines are, don't work, and you know the Hugo Chavez is running them. Like that, nobody will actually, I and mean, that's like that's only a handful of nuts that would think that. Like no, no, it was a real there, there was a real audience for that.
0: Yep. You know, uh, related to this is something you describe in your book about this dynamic among some people you observed in politics where it wasn't even connected to an issue, right? Their their involvement in politics, it became just petty and interpersonal um, where they found happiness in just owning the libs, right? Like mm. every day, whatever they could do to just hit the other side and make them feel pain, that became the goal. You write uh, this quote, Underneath the performance was a deep-seated desire to see the other side punished, to watch them get owned. Their grievances were based in part on ideology, but more often it seemed like simple interpersonal annoyance and privilege. This is where, like, after you've pushed a friend on, you know, why did she work for Trump and facilitate, you know, all that he wanted to do, despite having all these terrible judgments about him. And she was like, oh, the liberals, like, drive Teslas and, and drink culadas. <laughs> Right? right, it's annoying. <laughs> What's going on? There? Yeah, annoying. they're annoying. Well, you guys are I
1: annoying. Mean, <laughs> so that's what is, that's first. So, but what is this? You are what annoying. Is
0: this, uh, okay, we cop to it. But what is that that <laughs> dynamic? Where glee that like the gleefulness? She also described like after Trump won, she went on a trip. She encountered some uh some uh, a conference of like climate activists who were all deeply depressed with the with the Trump victory, yeah. and she felt just like you know unfettered happiness at their disappointment.
1: Right. right.
0: What unhealthy that is. Yeah, that takes us to this? a
1: dark place. Um, yeah, it is unhealthy. I, we do see, let's just, okay, we, we should just level set here and say that obviously there. this is a, a, a deep... Um, like psychologically damaged element of the right, um, that I want to get into, but we're seeing this in our politics more and more, right? I, we can't, we can't deny that. Like, we also have Twitter now, right? So yes. we, we've all seen yep. our own darker angels, and it happens across ideology that, like, when something bad happens to somebody from the other tribe, you see gleeful dunking on Twitter, right? Yep. Like that is just that is just a reality of human nature. Um, I think that there are certain things that have happened on the right that have. Supercharged that, and like, and, and made made it not only, um, you know, kind of accept like embarrassingly acceptable or whatever, but like encouraged right to to cultivate that darker element of of just wanting to see the other side punished. But but I I just think that there is some element of this that is. Not in every single human, but that is just a flaw. That's just part of a human flaw. Is that like we're tribal beings? Like we want to see our side win and the other side lose, and that's why I, I think it's dangerous. How, how, you know, going back to the identity question, how much our identity's been wrapped up into this? politics. That's like not how a democratic system that's, that's that with checks and balances is supposed to work, right? Um, it wasn't supposed to be the zero sum thing. So anyway, I, I do think there's an element of that that goes across. The what happened on the right. And I think this was driven. um, Just uh, some of this stuff was happening really before, but this was just supercharged by Trump himself. Is that Trump wins and Trump comes through the door, and he is none of these people liked him, like literally none of them. Right? There isn't. There wasn't like this secret well of support among staffers in Washington of like I kind of like this guy right like they're just so so they had to come around they like you know they didn't have to but but if you're in your brain you have to figure out okay how do I come around on this one of the ways to come around was he this didn't ever work for me so I'm speaking for them now in interviews but he's kind of funny right? He's good at a a jab. He's good at a takedown. And I think that they started to appreciate this about him, right? And so I think that people that had been frustrated with Mitt Romney types and, you know, Jeb Bush types and, you know, people that weren't willing to do that, they finally kind of got out stuff that they'd been thinking in their own head, right? Um, And, um, you know, maybe not the racist stuff, but like the stuff trolling, you know nancy pelosi or you know trolling mika or whatever right like they'd get a kick out of that you know and so then so over time you start to kind of appreciate that right and then after he wins especially then it's like oh man this like worked okay like there might be some special magic here that i didn't see uh and and so i think that that so simultaneously what happened is like their pre-existing resentments and jealousies which i think are real of, of democratic elites, particularly in the Obama era, right? If you're in the Obama era in Washington, celebrities want to hang out with Obama, you're getting invited to the parties, we can all just be honest, the press is a little yep. nicer to Obama than he was to us, <laughs> right? Like, just a little nicer. And, and so you get these resentments, and je- certain types of people in particular get these resentments and jealousies built up, right? And now they get taken down a peg, and you like that, right? Then the other thing that happens is that there isn't a lot you agree with Trump on, Right. And so like this is an area where you are kind of aligned, right? And 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 you can start to rationalize and justify. I think this on the staffer side to the name of this podcast is the thing that worries me the most about what is happening now on the right is that I see it in my former colleagues and stuff. Since they can't get excited about child separation, what do they get excited about, right? Like the lib owning, right? Like that's something that they can genuinely joke about, you know, at Bobby Vance with their friends after a couple of beers. They can be like, oh man, we took down so-and-so today. Like, LOL, like that was a good hit. And so then that becomes the prime thing, the prime motivator. And, and and so you don't have to kind of deal with the ethical quandaries because like your job is, well, I'm a lot of flack. I'm a comms guy. I'm an ad guy. My job is to take these guys down and Trump's kind of good at that. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do that. And we can just focus on that part of this and not worry about the other stuff except for when something really bad happens. Right. And then for a couple of days, our more our, our little consciousness come back in our brain again. And then, you know, that, that recedes. So yep. I think that has been, like, endemic now in, in Republican politics. I, I noticed it from my interviews, but also just mm-hmm. from conversations when I'm still around them. And um and, and I think it's getting worse because the types of people that are attracted to Republican politics are the types of people that like that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I see the 24-year-olds who are getting into politics. They are – they're different. They're different. Like, not – that different but you know like like in, when i was 24 the types of people that were starting to join george bush's administration were mostly like little alex p keaton's you know we were like the dorky right. like i like tax cuts and i don't really care that much about social issues and you know i I want I, I, I like the military <laughs> and i've got a red tie and i brought a briefcase to class and this was right previous i did the profile in the book like he literally brought a briefcase <laughs> yeah. to class okay like he was that kid in high school all right but – so that's not great, but that's way better than the types of people who are drawn to it now is like, oh, no, I'm, I want to – I'm like culturally aggrieved and, and want to like fuck up the liberal elites. and like that's why I'm joining politics because I like that part of it. So it's self-perpetuating. Um, so that, that worries me too.
0: Well, you – I mean your book is so thoughtful on both the motivations for why people get into politics and how that's changing – and the rationalizations that people use to work for bosses that they don't believe in. And obviously, the book is about people who work for Trump. But, you know, to your point, there are a lot of these lessons. And the reason why I wanted to talk to you, a lot of these ethical dilemmas yeah. apply across parties at all levels of being a staffer. And one of the ones that you, know, you just um, kind of touched on was that notion of, well, look, I, you know, I'm never going to agree 100% with any boss. Right. So that was a as you were talking to people, like why did you if if, you, if six months ago you said Trump was the worst thing in the world, why are you now going to, you know, work for him? That was one of the rationalizations. So how did you, you know, when people would offer that up, how did you respond? Well, I
1: used to do that, right? And that was me. And sure. that was part of the first half of the book, right? And I worked for anti-gay candidates. So I, you know, I was like, I that's usually how I'd respond was starting with that. Like I I worked for people who actively wanted to deny me like the most important thing about my life right now um and so okay if I could do that I understand how you could say well you know I can work for a person that it's not harming me I mean it's like it's not harming anyone I love you know Donald Trump's uh, you know a threat to democracy like hypothetically could harm me or my family at some point but you know, maybe those libs are all just a little over overzealous about that, and he's not really going to end democracy. And I, you know, I'm pretty safe in my cocoon of uh, prosperity here in uh, suburban Virginia. So why do I have to worry about that? Um, and so I, I you know, I sit there and say, "Well, look, I, eventually you have to find a, a red line for people." And I don't. And this is not. And I try to say. And another thing I say is, I don't. This is not about me getting on my moral soapbox, right? Like I think that I think about a counterfactual. What if Ted Cruz had beaten Trump? What am I doing now? I, I, the Cruz consultants all liked me, okay? Like I, I you know, I knew some of them for various different jobs. I was anti-Trump and very visible about that. Um, They'd call me from time to time. You know, you can imagine Ted Cruz being like, I don't know, it might help me as a far-right conservative to have a spokesperson that is a gay, kind of moderate Republican, right? And that yeah. you, know, I, you know, I don't know. that's this is just a crazy right? counterfactual, but who the hell knows, right? What would I have done then? And I and I my genuine answer to them when we talk about this is I don't know the answer to that I, I don't know like I I might have said no because Ted Cruz is just a little too far right for me I might have said yes I might have been like that's I don't know who else is ever going to offer me to be the White House secretary, the press uh, spokesman for the presidential campaign whatever the job was, um, and so I. I I don't feel good about that answer, but I try. I'm hoping that that level sets with them, and it's like this is not about me just kind of like wagging my finger yeah. at you. It's about saying, okay, where are we all have to figure this out. Like it's all it's a balance, right? Like there, it is true that that you you know are going to not work for jobs or people that are perfectly aligned for you, and it is true that politics is a competition, right? And that it's not as if you can just be this pure angel, right? That only you know does the thing that you think is perfect, right? You have to find this balance between your own personal you know, purity and competition. And and like my answer is to them is just to try to say, look, you have to act within your own integrity. Like is this within my own is this outside of my own integrity? Is this does this go over that line? You know, and and am I at least aware of the sacrifices that I'm making? Right. And this is this is my main message to everybody. It's like not to decide what to do at the end, but like my biggest regrets is looking back is I kind of just didn't think about it. It's like, right? The question is should I, you know, deal with Steve Bannon and do rap fucking behind the scenes to like screw over candidates? I was like, I was like, yeah, I should. Like, that's my job. I'm a, I'm a political hitman, right? Like, that's my job. I, I'm, a, I'm just one cog in this. Why should I think about the moral ramifications of this, right? Like, this is my job to be a PR man for candidates. And sometimes that means dealing with unsavory people. I look back at that and think, I don't know. Would I have done it differently? Would I have changed my mind? I'm not sure, but it would have been a nice to at least been aware. That like, is this a sacrifice that is worth it? Because there really are other opportunities. And my, my final message to all those people is like, if you aren't talented enough and educated enough to be in Washington and to have a job where you're the spokesperson for a politician or you're at a PR firm at a mid-level, you know, in your 20s and you're – like you, you actually have a lot of options. Maybe not your perfect job, maybe not your dream job, right? But like, there are a lot of options on the table. And and I think it's very easy to just be like, well, no, I just have to do this because this is what I have to do to get to the next thing. We're all much worse at predicting what will help us get to the next job than we think. You know, I remember yeah. doing things. I'm sure you did this, Jim. I remember doing things where I was like, I have to take this job because that job will help me get to the next job, <laughs> and that job will help me get to the next job two steps down the road. And sure. I was yeah. thinking that back in 2011, and now the job that I wanted. Two Steps Down the Road was a job that was held by, you know, whatever, Sean Spicer, because Donald, a uh, racist game show host, became the president. So, you know, it was hard to kind of predict what my path was going to be in 2011. And so it's kind of, it's silly to make decisions based on that. But that is how people think.
0: The, what you just described uh, resonated with me so much in your book. Because it... Thank you. Recognizing the motivations and the things that we're liking about the job require some self-awareness and some checking. You, you had this you had this line, politics remains a competition after all, so there is no path to total purity if you are a participant, only to an awareness of how you can be corrupted by the contest and a willingness to say no if lines are crossed. And that actually really reminded me of a conversation I had with one of my former bosses, former Congressman Rush Holt. He was telling me about a, a, another congressman who had served in the 70s in the 80s um, who'd become an alcoholic and despite his talents and how well liked he was um, he got caught up in some you know fraud he got caught up in AM scam and and Rush's takeaway was this town will find your weakness and maybe it's booze maybe it's sex maybe it's fame or money but like there will there, there are times where you'll be tempted with the things that you like. And one of the thing one of the ones I hadn't thought of but you described so well is serotonin, right? Just the boost <laughs> of the victory, the small victories or the big victories that you get. That can make us feel as tacticians like we're killing it. You know, like <laughs> right? And that that does require a, you know, a level of reflection. Of like why am i enjoying this what what am i responding to that we as you know you can go years in you know or all life and not have the you know the inward looking eye to actually recognize that in oneself
1: yeah. The tactician thing is so true. I mean, think about all the times you've been like so excited that you nailed something. And it's like, yep. if someone came back and told you about this now, it was like 10 years ago, he's like, do you remember this big win you were excited about? And it's like totally meaningless, some random client, some random, you know, that, but you're just really excited. That, that's good, though. It's a good to be to feel value in a job, right? And fulfillment. But like, it's also good to step back and think, okay, is this really that important? I, the the thing, the the light bulb for me on this um, this observation was I was reading, Olivia Nuzzi wrote this great profile of the anonymous Trump staffer. Do you remember this article? It was in New York Magazine. Yeah. You, you should go read it if you haven't. And and the guy, I assume, I don't think she says it's a guy, but it seems very clearly to be a guy to me. Um, says to her, um, uh, about leaking. Out of the working for Trump this person hated Trump and they said about leaking why do you leak and you know she was like is it a strategic thing because you know you don't want the administration to do this bad thing and what the guy says basically is like my first leak was kind of by accident and I told a reporter something and then it ends up on the front page and then I got this rush out of it and I was like oh man I'm I'm playing with live bullets now as I think his quote was his quote and like it was exciting and I just I remember reading that like my first thought was like Fuck this guy to hell, right? Like, fuck this guy, like working for Donald <laughs> Trump and just wanting to get this little rush. And then like 10 seconds later, my next thought was like, but I get it. I yeah, get it, right? You know? Um, and that made me feel bad, but it also, I think, what, you know, explains this kind of question that we're navigating.
0: Yep. Well, and, and another rationalization that you discuss is um, a, a typology that you describe as the little messiahs, i.e., people who look at Trump or their boss, and say, okay, terrible, incompetent, dangerous, but I'm needed because, and, and that person needs to be surrounded by talented, ethical people like myself, um, otherwise worse things will happen. And in response to that, you came up with something called the Corey Lewandowski theorem. <laughs> can, you, can you describe that for all this news?
1: Yeah, well... So this started beginning at the everybody remembers the committee to save America you know it was John Kelly and HR McMaster and I these people. we have to have these good people going in I was always skeptical of that from the start but even in my head I was, I was kind of like I don't know maybe I just have so Trump derangements and maybe I'm so far gone over my hatred of Trump that I can't see that it is you know we are still a country and we do need good people and in retrospect I kind of still think that you Know if you're the national security advisor, probably on balance was better that it was HR McMaster than Michael Flynn. Uh, you know, Michael Flynn's here, out there here. talking about how <laughs> the COVID vaccine is trying to turn us into cyborgs or something, so but probably yes. better that, that right. guy wasn't anywhere near the button. Okay, but the, the problem that I noticed very, very quickly, and this the conversation that sparked this was I think in December, so he hadn't Trump hadn't even gotten in yet, and it was a friend of mine, we were having dinner. And uh, they revealed to me that they were thinking about going in. And I was like, really? And I, I said, well, what happened? And so they got a call from a cabinet secretary. It's like, Tim, what am I supposed to do, not take this call? And I was like, I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was. I wouldn't take a call from one of Donald Trump's cabinet secretaries, I don't think. Uh, it depends on what the cabinet is, but this one was a one I wouldn't have taken a call from. And um, they were like, well... you know, I just took the call and they need me. They need somebody. It's good that somebody's in there. We need good people in there. It's still our country. And so I didn't, I wish I'd come up with the Corey Lewandowski theorem on the spot, but I was sitting there getting (laughs) mad, um, eating my stew, getting mad at my friend and like saying, what the fuck are you talking about? You're just going to be the spokesperson for a, you know, you're not changing, you're not saving any of the country. And so later on, I think actually it was when my old boss, John Huntsman decided to go into Russia. When I finally kind of, when I, when I came up with the Corey Lewandowski theorem, cause I was like, I need something to send to his wife and be like, why are you doing this? And it's like, really, if your job, if you were replaced by Corey Lewandowski, <laughs> people don't know who he is. He's just a horrible <laughs> campaign manager for Trump. He's like a moron and like has admitted to stabbing people to death. I think, um, maybe he was just, bra- maybe he didn't really do it. He's just bragging about it, but this is a bad person. Um, if there would be no impact on the welfare of the country if Corey Lewandowski had your job then you're not actually saving the country you're just like taking a job that like makes you th- because you want to take it and okay maybe that's maybe that's okay but then like let's deal with this question on the merits right of of the reality of why you're taking this job it's not to you know help jane in kansas you know i don't think that it would have mattered really um and the thing is that I would write read about this cuz it it became this rationalization was everywhere. I mean literally everywhere. People yes. would ta- would be like, "Hey, I work on the hill for such and such a senator and I need to be in this job because what would happen if my senator was defeated by Herschel Walker?" And it's kind of like I don't would it, I don't know. Like it, your senator just votes with Trump the whole time. <laughs> so like would it matter that much? If they get primaried. So, but, but it just became a very common thing uh, for that, w- that really only applied to like eight people at the top
0: of the national security apparatus. Yeah. Well, this is what, I mean, one of the reasons why I love your book is because these rationalizations that we're talking about, they're all matters of degree, right? right. Because there is truth, as you said, to like we do need good people. Who are ethical and competent yeah. in government, and yet, and and no one is going to work for a boss where they agree 100 of the time. And the other rationalizations that you grapple with are all have truth to them, yet when taken to an extreme, can lead you to dark places. And and I, this is why I really recommend staffers read the book because you do a great job of taking each one and diving into them. Um, speaking of the book, um, you know you list. A number of people in the acknowledgments section. Not what? you, I, I, not me. I know. I should have. I I, sh- can I, got I tell left you, out. Can I? Can I tell you I got why got
1: you out. would have maybe get mixed? Can I tell you? Can I tell give me. you a g- sure. why Jim Papa maybe should have you, m- been sure, in the acknowledgments? Hit me. The first moment that I that I kind of just came to terms mentally that I might have changed teams was when uh, you invited me to come speak to – I had been on an anti-Trump super PAC in the primary. Yes. You invited yes. me to come speak to a group of all Democrats about just lessons learned from that, right? Just kind of like you worked on this primary opposing Trump. Like maybe there are some lessons you can learn. I don't really remember uh, – the only suggestion I remember is that I, I remember telling you what we – what we didn't try that I wish we would have, that I still uh-huh. think Hillary should have tried, which was basically this notion that, like, Trump doesn't actually care about you. He rips people off all the time. They tried that a little bit. You did, the, But nobody, like, really carried that message very well against him yep. Um, in the way that they did against Mitt, right? Like, the car elevator, right? Like, that stuff ne- we didn't try in the primary, and um, I wish we had. And 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 then Hillary didn't end up trying it, really, in the general. I mean, you know, for, like, there might have been a press release or one ad or two here or there. But um, anyway but as relevant to the book was it was sitting there as when and i walking out of there i was kind of like i had this I, this time i might i might be putting on a new jersey now i might Uh-oh. be putting on a new jersey <laughs> yeah. we'll see what happens in november but like this uh, in retrospect that was my first moment of of thinking that i was uh, behind enemy lines and and might be on the other side of this wow. whole political competition so well, you didn't, didn't get acknowledged that. but um but that was <laughs> That was, you know, kind of a moment along the path yeah. here to me being a quasi-Democrat.
0: Well, um, thank you for sharing that story with me. Um, that's not why I asked about the acknowledgments. <laughs> uh, it seems like, you know, I mean, first, the, the book must have been challenging to write for a lot of reasons and that some people were really um, impactful in the advice that they gave you. And I'm just wondering if there's someone or some piece of advice that you would, you know, you could share. That was that helped to get you know uh,
1: advice about the book or about just kind of my life journey away from uh away from the darkness?
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, either one, you know. Um, actually, more about I think the latter, more about the journey and, and being willing to talk about it publicly, you know.
1: Yeah, well, um, I'm gonna start with on the, on the negative side of this first, um, which is uh, man. Like, pretty much everybody let me down, really. And, like, I think that's why the acknowledgments were so important. Like, because the number of people who said, you're doing the right thing, like, unambiguously, right? Like, there there were plenty of people who were, like, were whispering to me at the party. I kind of agree with you on this, but, you know, are you sure you're okay? Like, I got plenty of that, right? The people who were, like, unambiguously, this was the right thing to kind of blow yourself up like this. Um uh, that list was pretty short, um, just to the point of being almost maybe an empty set. I'm, I'm like looking looking back and trying to think about the people who are like unambiguously saying that was good, and that is, um, I just think that says a lot about the culture, right, uh, of Washington, um, and and. Um, even well-intentioned people, right? Um, even like Jeb is one of the heroes of the book, really. I, I still love Jeb. He's held the line on Trump. And um, even he, when I called him for advice, i like, whether I should do the anti-Trump thing, was like, I want you to do it. You know, I was worried that that he would that it would look bad on him or whatever, because people, every time I go on TV, people are like, former Jeb Bush spokesperson. And so I was like, if I'm going to do this, I at least wanted his blessing. And he's like, don't worry about me, but I'm worried about you, right? Like your career, you know, maybe you should be a little bit more calculating, um, and, and I, that was earnest advice, right. Um, which I didn't take. Um, <laughs> uh, and so like the number of people that gave, um, that, that gave the advice that was just like, no, do this, this is the right thing to do. You should see was like basically none. Um, the, the, the thing in the, uh, the people in the acknowledgements are mostly people that I met during these like post Trump kind of meetings, like support, basically support group yeah. meetings from like a handful of people throughout Republican politics who all decide to do this. And Bill Kristol for, you know, like me for all of his flaws. um, uh, The thing that I appreciated the most about him was and maybe I think it's because he had some distance having been really, I'm not calling him old here, but a senior statesman, you know, it was just like, Tim, when I first met him, he's like, all these people come up to me, all these Democrats come up to me, and they're like, I appreciate your courage. And all of these Republicans come up to me and are like, What are you doing? You're hurting your career. And he's like, I just don't really understand either of them. Um, he's like, Very self deprecating or self aware. He's like, I didn't think this was courageous. And I don't think that my career is over. Right. Like, I'm just doing the obvious thing that, you know, I felt like we should do in the face of this real threat. Uh, you know, we're going to figure out something else and have plenty of opportunities. We'll see what's going to happen. And so that just like kind of down to earth advice that I was getting during 17 was probably the best, you know, because I do think he was right, right? Like, I, it was something that resonated with me. I didn't feel courageous. I felt like this was obvious. And I didn't, you know, I was worried that my career was blown up. And I was like, I can find something else to do. I have a safety net. Jim Pop will hire me. I can go do PR <laughs> or something for some democratic firm. I can always, there's this backstop, right? Like, for people in yeah. politics, we're college-educated professionals, right? Like, we can always find something else to do. Um, What's well, not going to be this or you know, minimum wage job or struggling to pay the bills, right? So I think everybody should have that confidence in themselves that they have the backstop. So so that thing from Bill, just really quick, the other piece of advice was just from my other friend when I was considering the gym the the not gym Papa route because you're still doing some of the stuff but the I, I said to one of my friends over drinks, I was like, maybe I should just go be a PR man for Clorox and say, fuck this, right? <laughs> go sell wipes, go sell disinfectant wipes and like work nine to five and like do yoga and watch LSU football on the weekend and like be a dad and live my life, right? And he was looking at me, he's like, you're crazy. He's like, you know, you've put all this time to this. You do care about this. Like keep doing find something that you care about. To do. Like maybe it's not maximizing wealth or like career trajectory, but you know, you can find something to do that you're really excited about and 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 that uses the skills. And I and it was just kind of a random friend, really. I was in this like lost period in twenty seventeen yeah. with what do I do? And yeah. I was having drinks with people and I'm like, What do you think I should do? What do you think I should do? And that was one piece of advice that stuck with me that I think was also really right. So those were the two that I would I would look back on and and, and both of them are
0: acknowledged in the acknowledgments. Yeah. Well, um, OK, so my last question for you, we started with identity. So let me let me close with identity. Okay. You know, where does, you know, politics is still very much a part of your life. So how do you yeah. but but to your, your point, you're married, you're dead. You've got, you know, you've got other you know, parts of your identity that are hugely important you know, in comparison yeah. to politics today. So where does it fit in your life? And also um, talk about some of the projects you're working on.
1: Yeah, well, it's still an important part of my life. I sometimes I worry too much that being anti, like being anti-Trump, should not be sort of one's identity. Um, but sadly, I think it has to be a little bit. Um, and I would be lying to myself. If I said it wasn't. Um, but um, you know, I, I guess I would just say this: um, I walked away from two identities. All right? I guess being being straight. I was never straight, but that was my identity. Um, and and being a Republican. And in both cases. Um, like they were literally the two best decisions I ever made. Right. And so I, I just, so it's not as if politics is not part of my identity now or being a political commentator or being a writer isn't, but it's more about recognizing that like that doesn't have to capture you, right? Like you don't have to be fully captured by this. And I do worry. And I think in politics is particularly dangerous, right? I, this is a, it's just a job and B it's the kind of job where you kind of do have to work with people to get things done. Right. Um, and, and if it becomes this thing where, oh, it's a Sharks and Jets, uh, which is where everybody's going, um, uh, like that is not going to end in a good place, right? Like it just really isn't. And so for our whole polity. So I, I do right. encourage people to like you can love politics and have loving politics be part of your identity and your candidate you can love and be earnest about that. But just having just an inch, enough of an inch of separation, which is like this is actually not like. You know, whatever my—I guess it is kind of like a church. You can leave a church too, but you know, like this is not the central element that is unchangeable, right? Like that is not malleable that has to drive everything. So, it—it um, uh, it definitely continues to be. I'm just trying to be aware about it. Back to that lesson, but um, right now, so I'm working for the Bulwark. Um, I hope people are reading the Bulwark. It's so fun. It's the most fun thing. Or actually, it's the second most fun thing I do. I have a Snapchat show, uh, which is once a week. Teen. The only people that watch it are 13 to 24 year old boys. I don't know why women don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't have an answer to that. I'm just looking at the stats, but um, I hear from them all the time, and they're mostly kind of trying to figure out what where they fit in politics. Most of them don't love the woke campus stuff, and they also don't love fucking Donald Trump. And so, like, they watch the show, and that, that at least. And it's not really, my party. Here. Is it's that still what not it, my party? Yeah, yeah, it's still not my party on Snapchat. I really enjoy that. Um, I pop on MSNBC from time to time. Um, and uh, I don't know. I need to. I have the book is the book tour is just ending. This is Jim Popper. This might be my last podcast. Not, no, I guess not my last. It's one of my last, um, on it. And uh, I need to figure out something else to do. So I don't know. Idea, I'm back in my 2017 phase. Ideas welcome. Maybe if you have a great idea for me, you can be acknowledged in the next book. It's the person that's uh, like, well, this now, I
0: have, now I have a goal. Um, <laughs> I, I, Tim, I really cannot thank you enough for um, talking with me uh, today on this podcast. I loved the book. Um, so I, think it's impor- I think it's an important book. I think it is unsparing in its honesty. And it grapples with some really complicated things that, as I said at the top, we don't often talk about in politics that do need to be grappled with by anyone who's in this business. And you do it with grace and humility and humor. Um, so thank you. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, I will take the assignment and try to come up with something uh, for your next big project. (laughs) Thanks so much, brother. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up. For episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffershow on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.